Hello everyone, you are listening to The First Draft Collective, a podcast for discussing and creating stories. This is episode two of our podcast, and I am once again Paul, and I am here with uh, my partner in this endeavour, Thornwild. Hello! So last time we talked a little bit about um, ourselves and how uh, we are as writers. So this time I thought we would focus a bit and talk a little bit more about uh, world building, um, which I think in a lot of people's minds is instantly thinking about Tolkien-esque massive appendices at the backs of books uh, and scribbles of research notes that barely ever get used in in their actual drafts. Um, but it is world building is something that, um, that that is an important part of any book, and I think that goes the same for whether it's uh, a massive uh, sci-fi or fantasy world or whether it's just something that's more down to earth. So I think we talked a little bit last time about how uh, you, Thorn, you tend to just start writing. Yeah. Most of the time, yeah. Yeah. And you tend to make it up as you go a little bit? A lot of the time. Like, not always. I do occasionally do more um, in-depth world building, but often before I do that, I just start writing. But... As you're sort of writing, even in the likes of uh, literary fiction or or more true-to-life fiction anyway, there is a world that you create as you go. Yes. Yeah. So let's start at a bare bones then. What is the basis of world building? For you, I should say. For me. Do you mean sort of how I start out? Yeah. So how do you... I mean, presumably you have an idea of plot or of character. Mm-hmm. So from there, how do you expand on the world that they exist in? Depends a little bit on genre, obviously. But um, if I'm writing like uh, romance or young adult or whatever, um, a lot of the time, like you say, I just start writing and then the world kind of appears around the characters in a sense. Like I don't necessarily put all that much thought into it to begin with but eventually even if it's something as small as say a school or a workplace or something like that um, a university you know whatever there is world building involved because you have to be consistent and you have to know where things are and have sort of an image and an idea of what it looks like and who's there, and what's there, and what is being done in this place, and, yeah, stuff like that, so... I I think people don't tend to necessarily think of that sort of thing as world-building, or even just research. If you decide to set your your story in an existing place, then the research that you want to take to do that, and the decisions that you make in that story to fictionalize that setting even if it's a real setting is yeah. still world building yeah you know we think of world building as this massive you know fantasy or sci-fi endeavor but in reality it is just you know whatever you do to create the the setting the setting or mm. the world that your characters inhabit and move around in so i mean you tend to focus a little bit more on literary fiction than i do but you do do sci-fi and fantasy as well 
I don't want to necessarily talk a little, I don't want to talk too much about horror existing projects too much while they're still ongoing. But I know you're also creating a a broader world. Yeah. And we've spoken about this quite a few times. As I recall, you in that occasion created the world before you really inhabited it, right? Am I right? Well, not entirely, because I up. <laughs> Once again, a cat has invaded our recording. I started writing just a few loose scenes before I sort of thought all that much about the world, and I did have a couple of the characters at least slightly thought out. And then I started working on the sort of the world building itself, and I started sort of um, properly thinking about how it was supposed to be, what it was supposed to be like. And at that point, I actually used once I started sort of focusing properly on the world building, I actually found this uh, world building tool online called um, called World Anvil, which was, I think, originally made to be used for roleplay settings, tabletop RPG settings and uh, things like that, to create those from scratch. But it was very, very useful for creating a bigger setting for, um, for, say, a science fiction or fantasy novel, because it has a lot of templates where you can sort of fill in character information and things like that, and and um, locations and organizations and, and um, countries and just all kinds of stuff. And that actually, having those templates in front of me kind of kick-started my creativity a little bit. So that really worked for me to sort of have a structured base on which to build and that world in question is based on our world, and it's not that far into the future, but it's uh, it's a very different version, like a lot has happened socially. So even then, you base it on this world that we already know? Yeah, in that instance, yeah. I also have a fantasy project that's more, has a, a, well, an original world, but uh, I actually haven't done all of the world building for that alone, because it's vaguely based on my uh, Dungeons and Dragons campaign. <laughs> So my group, the DM, and the rest of my group have kind of collectively built that world, and then I'm now adapting it because I made a player character that I fell in love with and wanted to write a book about. Hoping that they'll get some mention in the acknowledgements. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, so there as well I'm using World Anvil to flesh out the ideas that I have. I found it really helpful to have like all of these different sort of almost questions, prompts that ask me about the different parts of my world from having a feel where I write what my characters look like and their family backgrounds and stuff like that to a template for a fictional country or city or political system. But um, well, how about you? I mean, you have a fantasy project, don't you? I have numerous projects. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for me, I don't tend to do anything that's structured, which I think I also mentioned the last time we were doing this as well, I tend to come up with the world first a lot of the time because I just come up with a cool idea and just go, yes, that, I want to do that. And then everything else kind of comes later. But as I'm doing that, I'm always asking myself, you know, what's, you know, what makes this world believable? Is this concept even believable in the first place? Because suspension of disbelief is important to me. You know, and how do people and societies and events unfold in this world in a way that is uh, believable. 
And I mean, I I tend to be fairly crazy for for stories like The Expanse by uh, James uh, S. A. Corey, where politics and the um, interaction between different cultures kind of intermingle. Yeah. And in some ways, I tend to try and incorporate that that sort of aspect of a world into my own work. Uh, not necessarily because of the expanse itself, but from a lot of sources. But I try to make sure that whatever I'm doing, I try and relate it back to how people think. So if I have an event where it's set in a world where um, there are different societies, whether they be different races, different religions, different countries, then I try to have a little bit of um, a mix of of different uh, views and opinions. Mm. And I think that is kind of what makes a, a world feel real to me, that you have different points of view in it. It's the same thing that you get in, in shows like uh, Firefly. Yeah. Where you have different characters from different backgrounds coming together and they all do have their different motivations and their different viewpoints in the world. Mm. And I think that is kind of my goal in whatever story I'm telling it, whether, whether it's high fantasy or sci-fi where it's an entirely different world or, you know, more of a, um, a, a game-esque world within worlds. Mm. I think that kind of is what makes uh, a world feel real. And everything else, I'll, I'll just basically pull out of thin air and I'll note down. And um, some stuff might not even get used, but I all just throw it into a pile and then sort through it and work out exactly where, what fits where. And it can feel to me sometimes like it's fairly arbitrary, the decisions that I make. But at the same time, that almost feels more organic to me. Hmm. Because, quite frankly, the world that we live in is sometimes just very random, arbitrary, and sometimes just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. (laughs) This is true. I think that in the case... I think that it's the case with most world-building and for most authors that for a lot of the things that you come up with while you're building the world never actually get mentioned in the story or aren't uh, don't get explained in the story. But it's important for you as the author to know it. It's important for, for the author to understand how the world is linked together and then try and kind of balance how much of that gets put in the story so you don't end up with like huge info dumps that just get boring to the reader yeah that, that's uh, something that i think is for writers when you're writing your own work you tend to reach a point where you think i know this but the reader will not mm. so therefore you just info dump and that is usually more often than not not necessary sometimes it is sometimes you need to get across what you are um what what your world is about but usually you don't need to do that And it's also a question of how you do it, though. Like, it's fully possible to reveal all of those things in an organic way through exposition, through dialogue, for instance, having uh, characters discuss something. And I mean, in any sort of fantastical setting, science fiction or fantasy or whatever, there is going to be a little bit of info dumping because people need to understand the world. But it's a question of how you do it and where you put it and how you spread it out that you don't have like a block of text that explains everything or a prologue that just sort of 
explains the entire world before you get into it instead of sort of organically having it um, revealed in through the story and through the plot. Are you saying Star Wars movies do it wrong? <laughs> no comment. We love Star Wars, by the way. But yeah, I, I'm not quite sure the um, big slow crawl at the beginning of a book, show, movie is necessarily the way to, to, to go stylistically. I... I I don't I I don't read the the text at the beginning of the Star Wars movies. <laughs> I just let it roll. And don't pay attention to it. I mean, okay. To be fair, uh, that would it doesn't detract. I don't think that would detract from the movie at all if I did if I didn't read the text. I would, however, wonder how they got to destroying the Death Star to being on an ice planet and being hunted down by the Empire in the second one, though. But still, second one, fifth one. I'm just going to let our listeners decide on that one. Yeah. Um, while we're on the subject of info dumping and the amount of information that, a, that a, a reader or a viewer should have, there are worlds that have a lot of character and a lot of world put into them, but very little explanation about how the world actually functions. And I'm thinking of the likes of Gaiman, Neverwhere, American Gods, where obviously you have a viewpoint character and nothing is really... They experience the world entirely from the viewpoint of an outsider. And the world is not necessarily explained to them all that well, or to the the reader. But the world still feels very present and very fleshed out. And you do get a sense of events around the viewpoint character, despite the fact that the viewpoint character does not necessarily know what is happening. Yeah, I think that, well, in general as well, having that kind of viewpoint character and that kind of sort of outsider perspective is a really good way of revealing world building, though. Yeah, of course. Like, I know that in this particular instance, that's not, it's not done that much in that way because we're left in the dark about a lot of things. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's the classic thing of having the fish out of water character that other characters can exposit to. Yeah. It's just taken to its furthest ex- extreme. Exactly. But, I mean, it's... Again, that's also a thing that needs to be done organically. If it's just like everything is being explained to this one guy constantly, that's not all that much fun to read. I think all world-building exposition is kind of a balancing act when it comes to those kinds of worlds. How you present the world has to be in a balanced and organic way so that you're not pulled out of the narrative too much and out of the story because you're there to read the story. I mean, most people are there to read the story. I know there are some people who essentially love sci-fi and fantasy just for the worlds and don't actually care that much about the plot. I have met people like that. I find it strange, but they do exist. But for the most part, when you're reading a book or watching a film or whatever, you're there for the plot, you're there for the characters, you're there for the story... And the setting, you have to understand the setting to a certain degree, but if that can happen without you feeling like you are being told all the time what's going on, then that is sort of the ideal balance of, uh, of well-building exposition, I think. Well, taking this back to what this podcast is meant to be in the first place then, so we're talking about first drafts here. Yes. So, I mean, when you're writing an initial draft, would you necessarily worry about that, though? Or would you just throw in exposition and info dumping just basically for the sake of your own head and then pick and choose it later in, in 
later drafts as you revise it? Or would you make decisions based on what you want to include as you go and try and keep a concise, a clear and concise view image of your head of how you want this world to be shown to the reader as you go? I think um, for me, a little bit of both, I guess. Like occasionally, if I have a scene, like a scene that I see very clearly in my head that I want to write, I just write it. And then I worry about all of the sort of exposition and stuff like that later. And I focus on the scene that I want to write, the dialogue in it, what it looks like, the descriptions and things like that. And then later I can think about whether that is enough or whether I need to include more, well, information, I suppose. Hmm. more exposition about the world in the scene for it to make sense to a reader who doesn't know the world. Sometimes I do sort of try to... Because some scenes and some chapters, that's the point. Like, the point of it is to show the world Hmm. um, and give the the reader kind of an introduction to that. And then I probably include that already in the first draft, but then try to sort of balance it later on. I tend to... I mean, I, I think I tend to try and find a balance myself. However, I mean, I, I don't go as far as having characters that turn to another character and go, as you know, but... <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, but at the same time, when I'm initially writing, I will just include scenes where I just break off and start to explain to my imaginary readers at this point what is happening, why it's happening, and probably cut it down later. Yeah. Because, you know, by the end, of, by the time I'm done, I'll probably have, you know, a paragraph or two that are quite lengthy. That if I read back later, I might decide, actually, that's fairly necessary. I'll keep that. Or otherwise, I'll just go, no, that's a, a bit too much. I want to reveal more later and then cut it down and maybe a while later explain more. Yeah. And I think it kind of works to have the reader kind of exposed to world sometimes in just bite-sized chunks. Mm. where they can understand an aspect of the world and have that established to them, have it firm in their mind what that aspect is, and then build on it and add something else later. I I think that is what you tend to see in a lot of more uh, well-regarded science fiction and fantasy. I mean, one of my favourite novel series at the moment, which has been going for a number of years now, it's uh, uh, the Rivers of London series by Ben Aronovich. And that is what we were talking about with having a viewpoint character. The viewpoint character is introduced to this world of magic. For the record, Rivers of London is a great series. You should read it if you are into having a more adult version of Harry Potter set in the London Metropolitan Police. (laughs) It's the best way I can describe it. But the viewpoint character, um, he is um, just a regular guy who gets introduced to this world of magic who seemingly, it, it seems in the story that there are, while it is more or less a secret, it, it's a hidden world to most people, but there are a the fair share of people who do know so the uh, the world is kind of it kind of unfolds through the viewpoint characters, so you get a little bit of a, a nugget of information about the way that magic works at the beginning and the sort of Dumbledore of the whole series, Chief Inspector um, Thomas Nightingale, and you learn a little bit about how the magic system works, and then the entire book series is the main character, Peter Grant, exposed to a different section of that magical world. And he'll have almost no clue about it going in. 
And then through him, you sort of learn that a little bit more. And by the time that we're getting through to the... I'm not quite sure what book we're on now. Fifth? Sixth? Could be more. There's a few novellas as well on top of that. But it's only now that there is a fairly firm view, in my head anyway, about this world and how it works. And, I mean, that's the benefit of having a series. Mm. You can't necessarily do that in a single novel. But it does mean that, you know, you you read a full book and you have, okay, well, I understand this part of the world now. And you start the other one and you get another section of the world and another and another and another. And by the end of it, you end up with, you know, quite a strong view in your head of how the world functions and the history of it. And at no point does it necessarily feel like you're being info dumped on. I'm sure there are sections where Mr. Aronovich would probably feel like he has info dumped on the reader, but speaking personally as someone who was reading through it, I never really felt that way. Mm. And I think that's a good, solid way of sort of going about a um, world that is feels living. Yeah, I um, one of my sort of favourite settings, I suppose, is Ursula K. Le Guin's Hainish Cycle, which isn't a series. It's a collection of novels, novellas, quite a few short stories that sort of just happen to take place in the same world or in the same universe. So each book sort of takes place on a different planet and has a different setting and they weren't released chronologically or anything like that at all. There's always a lot of world building involved with each book, but there's a general sort of background to it that's the same. There are two, especially two books in that um, world, well, that cycle, that do the kind of fish out of water kind of exposition and both do it quite well. Um, there's The Left Hand of Darkness from 1969, I think, and uh, The Dispossessed, which I think is from 1974. In the former, you have a world where the people who live there don't have sex, which is quite... Or by that, I mean that they, they, they don't have gender. They are androgynous, except for once a month when they go one way or the other. And, I mean, that's a very, very specifically different world that's sort of a bit hard to imagine. So the way that it's... The, the book is built is that you have the, I believe, first-person point-of-view character who has come from a different world or a different planet and is there as kind of an ambassador and then sort of experiences this world and these people. And it's a very, it's kind of like a thought experiment that's quite interesting. Similarly, in The Dispossessed, you have, you have these twin planets, one of them's technically a moon, uh, that have two very different systems. The moon is an anarchic, uh, anarchist uh, and syndicalist system, whereas on the main planet you have we have several different countries but specifically the country that's explored there is a capitalist country and so the main character Shevik comes from the moon and travels to the planet and experiences their system and is exposed to that and that's how we're exposed to that and then there are flashbacks to sort of his childhood and his him growing up back on that moon so that we get exposed to that system which are both I think pretty cool ways of of that kind of exposition Based on what you're describing, that feels like to me something that I find a little bit of a pet peeve in world building, if mm -hmm. I'm being honest. And that's the concept of, I think I've heard it before referred to as a planet of hats, where uh, you have a, a world or a specific society or culture that is literally wearing one type of hat, as in this is the... 
this is the capitalist planet, or this is the, or if you know, to to extend it to more of a, a Tolkien's perspective, I suppose you have orcs who are warlike, mm-hmm. and then you have elves that are peaceful, and hobbits that are farmers, and then you have uh, humans in the middle that basically are a bit of everything. Yeah. And that tends to be... It's the same in, in Star Trek as well, which I think is originally where I heard the, the term planet of hats. It's something that I personally... I, I think it works thematically in a lot of stories. And to be honest, I can be consuming a form of media with that trope, and I'm fine with it. But just thinking about it, actually running it through my head as a concept, I find takes me out of the the universe a little bit. Well, the dispossessed doesn't feel that way at all. I can say that it's because what the whole what the whole story essentially or the 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 basis for the book, the idea behind it is literally exploration of different political systems and its strengths and its weaknesses and they're both kind of presented as utopias to begin with and then you delve into them and you find out more and you you sort of get beneath the surface of them and you sort of you end up it's very ambiguous you end up kind of having to make up your own mind about it but that's i mean that's a, a that's something to get into another day i guess but um but it's not it doesn't feel like planet of hats it's uh first of all there's a background for it they all these people started on the same planet it's there was a revolution and people moved to the moon kind of so it's it's not that completely foreign thing just that there has been very little contact. Let's talk a little bit about how we research these worlds that we create. I mean, as I mentioned at the start, when we're creating something that's more based in in the real world, that's just as much world building, choosing what we want to set the story in. And if you're doing something that's true to life, then that's fine. But when we're dealing with something like science fiction or fantasy then we end up creating inevitably things that don't exist. So do we, or do you and me, just create whatever's off the top of your head and incorporate that into your story? Or is there still research that you do to consider how your world works in that regard? Both. <laughs> it's always both. It's I, what, always both. I, I ask these questions as, as thought-provoking <clears throat> to, to get thought-provoking responses, not to necessarily say it's one or the other, because everybody writes in different ways. Yeah. I think in the case of, for me specifically, of my my fantasy world, for instance, it's a lot more sort of unrealistic, <laughs> or it's not based in, because it's not based in our world or our systems at all. I mean, there's magic, and it's actually very based in the plot, it's actually very based in that magic, and the magic system that I've created for it. And that's not something that we have. So it's quite far removed from reality or from our reality. And and so I haven't really needed to do all that much research for it. Yeah, I did. No, I did actually do some research. I did some research to find out how many people lived in countries about the same size of the country in my story in the Middle Ages. Like what's realistic? How many people can you fit into a medieval city? Quite a few is, is the correct answer, apparently. Like there were there were like 20 million people in Germany and France combined in the 11th century or whatever. Not insignificant. No, a lot of people. Tiny compared with now, though. Well, yeah, but <laughs> still 
quite a few people. There's a lot more people than you'll see in your average, uh, <laughs> your average city and your average RPG. That's true. Yeah. I mean, we live in Oslo where you don't see a single person for days on end anyway. So. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, but in my, my science fiction world, I have done a lot of research and I'm trying to sort of, one thing is trying to predict what things are going to be like in 70 years, like trying to predict the kind of technologies and things that there are. Another thing is sort of all the things that have already been predicted, like climate change, for instance, which was um, something that I had to address. How has humanity actually influenced the climate in 70 years? What does things look like? And I, had to, I looked up projections from, um, I think the UK government, some organization, some group, committee, I don't remember, but I looked up, um, I looked up projections for, uh, for rising sea levels and CO2 levels and, uh, stuff like that, um, that went about as far into the future as I needed them to go, which was quite interesting really to, uh, to see those projections and made me a little bit concerned. <laughs> but yeah, so that there, I had to do quite a bit of research and also into sort of what technologies are possible in 70 years, 70 years without it being boring i started out when i started out writing it it essentially like i had a hard time imagining these things so i just had sort of slightly more advanced versions of exactly what things are like now and then i was like but it's 70 years in the future i have to fix this so i actually did a little bit of crowdsourcing on twitter and facebook where i just asked people what's a technology that you think is going to be freely available to most people in 70 years. I got a lot of really interesting answers as well. And that's stuff that I'm then going to research more in depth and try to incorporate into my story. Would you find it more daunting then to create, say, because that's, that's near future. That's, yeah. that's 70 years in the future. So that's quite close, really. Would you find it more or less daunting to create something that is in the Far, far future, where basically, you know, science could have progressed you know, beyond our point of current understanding, where you mm. just have to create it all from scratch, as it were. Would you still try and find a common frame of reference to history, to today? Would you research, say, you know, past, um, past civilizations or, you know, try and find inspiration from the real world? Or would you say just try and muddle through and, and make it up as you go along in that regard? I don't know, actually, because I haven't done that. But I think I would try to do some research and try and have some basis in, in reality for the stuff that that I was going to create. But I also think that I think in a way it would be easier because I'd have more freedom. I'd have more freedom to make shit up, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... I think actually to just mention again the Hainish cycle, well, the technology there is actually very, very based in sort of reality and in, in actual scientific theories that just being put into practice, like uh, relativity theory and things like that. There's no faster than light travel. There's nearly as fast as light travel. So that the time that the people traveling experience is shorter than the time that actually passes in the real universe. So for a person who's traveling from one planet to another, to them it might have taken a week, feels like, whereas in actuality it's taken several months or even years and they haven't aged but the people that they know have. Which I find really interesting and which is obviously based in sort of actual theory and isn't that far-fetched. I mean, 
being able to do it, building an engine that can do it, that is still a bit far-fetched, but the theory behind it isn't at all. And it's, so it's not sort of just made up. It's got a real sort of basis in scientific theory that is that would be possible if we just had the correct engines for it. And I think that I would probably try to do something like that because that's just the kind of person I am and the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. I think I'd have a hard time sort of just completely making shit up, not because the act of making it up is difficult because I have a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good and vivid imagination, but because I wouldn't feel right about it. I'd want it to be more real than that. That makes sense to me. At what point, because this happens to me all the time, do you reach a point when you're researching when you just go, this is too much. I am getting into the details of this far too deeply. I am just going to take some artistic license at this point. And oh, yeah. Decide for myself. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. That does happen and will happen. And is totally okay, I think. And I mean, there's a lot of genres where that is basically the norm as well. Like, there is a lot of artistic license in like 99% of crime fiction, which is stuff that takes place in our world, in our time, with technologies that do exist, but where you just kind of make up how they're used because actually getting into the theory of it and actually having things take as long as they really take and stuff like that is really fucking boring. <laughs> <laughs> and little old ladies who have nothing else to do rarely solve crimes. This is also very true. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things is, I mean, one of my favorite books is uh, The Martian by mm -hmm. Andy Weir. And one of my favorite stories about that is that basically vast portions of that book are calculated. Andy Weir is a far better mathematician than uh, probably say about 99.9% .9 of the population. And he worked out things like exact orbital mechanics between Mars and Earth to find out when the be when the preferred date of space launches would be. In fact, I think the story is that he was doing that specifically for fun one day when he decided, you know what, I can make a story out of this. And and there's things like to do with with engineering and. Uh, the history of NASA, and so on and so forth. And it is all exact. And he, he had a lot really of it. He really did his research. Yeah, and, he, and he, he also had... It wasn't all just him, by the way. He had a lot of input from, from various sources because when he originally wrote the book, he almost crowdsourced information because he just put it up for free when he was first writing it. But th there were a few things that he decided, okay, to make this story work, I need to have this as something that cannot possibly happen but I'm going to have it happen. Mm. And the whole, without giving away too much about The Martian, which is an excellent, hilarious book. And a wonderful film. And a wonderful film. Is the whole basis of the story is centered around an astronaut that gets le left behind on Mars after a severe, uh, a severe sandstorm that threatens to destroy the base and topple the, the, the Martian lander. That, mm. that his team was on. That would almost certainly be not possible in real life because Martian sandstorms are not all that powerful. There's not enough air pressure to make them that big a threat. They are a threat to things like solar panels and the like because dust just covers things. But to say that a 
several ton spaceship would just topple over in wind on Mars is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And yet, despite all of the research, despite all of the the highly detailed facts that are in that book, and it is one of the most detailed and realistic science fiction novels you will read because of the amount of research that's gone to it, that core facet that sets up all the events in the book is almost, I'm going to say almost, almost impossible. <laughs> and I just think that that's sort of, you know, you, d- you don't care. I think, you know, you don't, reading that book, I know full well that, that is not possible as a bit of a, a space geek, but I don't care because it's a good story. Yeah. And, you know, that's what it comes down to. You know, you, when, you, when you are writing a world, there's a lot you can get away with in terms of stretching the, the suspension of disbelief, providing it is fun for the reader. Yeah, providing it's, and providing it's not so fantastical that it doesn't, that it completely pulls you out of the uh, idea and the action in that particular kind of instance, obviously, in certain, certain genres and certain kinds of stories. The more fantastical, the better. But that draws us neatly, I think, to some fun. So we're going to return to the game that I made up last week. And um, we're going to try and adopt it for world building. Adopt? Adapt? Adapt. It would be adapt. Yes. I swear I'm smart. <laughs> yeah, we're going to uh, to adapt this to, uh, to something a little bit... Um, a little bit different from what we did because last time we did it so that we were choosing a character and building on the character and where they were. Yeah. And this time we're going to start with a location. Good idea. And we're going to we're going to choose a location, probably several locations. We're going to choose events that occur in those locations and items to put in those locations and then we're going to choose the characters last to inhabit that world. So a little bit different to how We'd necessarily world build to start. Yeah. We have no plot. We have no character. We are just going to focus on creating the world that the that will happen first. And then hopefully this will turn out okay. <laughs> hopefully it will be interesting. Once again, I have my box of six compartments. Blue is location. I will get a location then. Okay. First human space colony. I added that one in earlier today. Mm. So, let me think. From there, if we choose an item... Are we going to do like last time where we decide which significance it has before we look at it? Yes. So, we could choose things like the item is this location's greatest export. Or we could... I suppose have it a little bit more vague than that. The, the item that we choose is significant for that location and then we can choose why later. I kind of think it's more fun to say that we already know. I'm thinking maybe it can be an item that is culturally significant to this location. Well, that's going to be interesting for the um, for humanity's first space colony. Yep. I'm really hoping it's not going to be that monogrammed wallet again. A diploma. Um, How could a diploma have um, cultural significance for the first human space colony? I mean, there's nothing to say that the first human space colony is new. It, it could be years after it's set up. So maybe it is now 
an educational centre? Yeah, I was thinking that. Maybe it's a university. Or um, a campus of an earth university. Mm. That specialises in studies of... Yeah, it could be like a research outpost almost for an educational institution. I suppose we should also decide where is this space colony? Is it on a planet? Is it, say, a livable space station in orbit? Or is it on Mars, the moon? Or is it somewhere outside of the solar system? I don't think it makes sense for the first human space colony to be outside of the solar system. I think we would colonize some moon or planet in our solar system first. Mars or the moon, I suppose, make more make most sense. Unless it could be like a space station built around an asteroid, maybe? You'd be going a bit more further afield, but you could do that. I would think that if you were going to have an educational centre, though, it might not be on an asteroid, though. It could be. It could be specialised in geology, which would be great on an asteroid, I suppose. Maybe it's on one of Jupiter's moons. Titan, Io, or Europa, maybe? Europa would be ideal, because on Europa there's uh, water. Science. Science. Let's say Europa, because I think that it would be super interesting to research the waters of Europa. Maybe they found life there. That or would be looking, really cool. Or looking for life there. Looking for life there. That's actually the plot of a science fiction novel I wanted to write at one point. I still want to write, but um, I got mired in research. <laughs> you, um, you're claiming that one, so hopefully no one will steal that now that you've sp- spoken about it. So, okay, okay, so... We have the first human space colony on Io. Europa. Europa, sorry. On Europa. A bit further afield than I would have thought for the first human space colony, but I suppose there's nothing actually on Mars or the Moon worth looking at, so... Or they could just be small stations that aren't really colonies. Yeah. And on this colony, on Europa, there is a campus of a university, of an Earth university, that specialises in in the research of Europa's waters. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's cool. So we have one location in this world that we're creating, or mm-hmm. this, this universe I suppose we're creating right now. I think I shall select another location for it. Okay, so I have an Old West town. <laughs> we were watching an Enterprise episode last week where they came across an Old West town on an alien world. Would you like to say that there is an Old West town in underwater on Europa? <laughs> That would be absolutely hilarious. I'm going to say no. Yeah, because I'm going to say no because it's really dumb. Maybe there is one on Earth. Well, that's I mean, connected in some way. I mean, there are those those um, like old West like pres- I think they're either preserved or they're you know kept as as historical landmarks where you know you have recreations of old West towns in the states. So maybe it's one of those. Maybe it's nearby the university that. Uh... Owns the Europa campus. It could be. If anybody knows of any Old West towns that are near universities that this could possibly be, please let us know because I'm honestly quite curious now. Maybe when we get to it, our main character will be... From that town? That's what I was thinking. No, no, no. No, I'm gonna, no. Because obviously these Old West towns, like I said, they do recreations and things. Mm-hmm. So maybe the main character works at this town. As a recreationist. But he attends the university. The Earthbound University. Okay. Do I need a character now? Or should I go with an item? Let's 
get another item. We were going to focus mostly on the wild to begin with anyway, so... That is true. However, on hindsight, I think we are going to need to flesh this out with people sooner rather than later. Yeah, possibly. This item is in the Old West Town, mm-hmm. but it is key to the research being done on Europa. Okay, this could be very interesting. What is it? A bicycle. How are you going to solve that one? A bicycle that is somehow key to the research of this underwater space colony on Europa. I have an idea for it. I want to share it later. I want to expand a little bit more first, and then and then we'll get back to that. We haven't had events yet. I'll pick an event. Okay. Reading club. I suppose there could be a reading club at the university. No, there could be a reading club in the uh, at the university on Earth. Yes, that makes sense. Or would you rather have a reading club on the campus on Europa? Because, well, I mean, you got to keep yourself occupied in space. True. But I was thinking maybe the reading club could somehow be related to how a potential protagonist gets from the... The university on Earth to the campus on Europa. Like, maybe they meet someone who is involved in that whole thing and convinces them to go or something. No. No? No. I think the reading club should be... The members of the reading club are our protagonists. Okay. And it is about how the reading club meets at university. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that one of these members works... At this old west town, mm-hmm. where they find this bicycle, which is the key to perfecting the research on Europa. I am suspecting that the other members of the reading club, or some of them, or one or two of them, I suppose we should probably come up with a number, are going to Europa to continue this research. And the, the one that is in the old west town who comes up with the bicycle idea absolutely must let them know at some point during the course of the story. So I think now... We can have a few characters. Should we just draw one each? We'll draw one Straight each. Straight away. So we'll have two characters. So this will be the one that is on Europa. No, I think this will be the one who's in the Old West Town. It says Dog Walker. I don't think there are a lot of dogs on Europa. No. Oh, I have a better idea. Can you tell yet that I'm good at this? <laughs> I hope so. Maybe not. I think you're good at it. Dogs are underwater drones. If you're a dog walker, you are the you drone are operator. operator. I'm not quite sure. Could dog be an acronym for something? Deep observer guide? No. Deep observation groupie. <laughs> deep, deep observation something. Yes. I'm not quite sure what. We'll, we'll think about it some more. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's a dog walker. Your character, your character is on Europa as a dog walker. That makes sense, actually. That makes sense. Really. Yeah. Actually, That's what we're going with. It actually really does. Okay. Well, not bad for me. So engineer them, probably. Yes. They could have, They could be studying engineering, and as part of that, they are they are a dog walker. Or even um, an, oceo- an oceanographer. An, o- an oceanographer? Oceanographer, I think. Because you have to map the underwater oceans of Europa if there is a, a research base there or a university campus there. That has to be what they do. That's true. Or part of what they do anyway. Yeah. So they're an oceanographer who runs these drones to expand their knowledge of Europa's oceans. All right. We need another character. Yeah, your turn. Yeah. This one. 
This one kind of has to be the old West Town. Yeah. I don't think I put cowboy as an option in here. I really hope not. Well, that's just convenient, and I'm going to end up picking another one. I got student. I swear I randomized these. These are unaltered from the first time that I made the game. Soldier. That's a little bit more interesting, at least. That is a bit interesting. Maybe, um... I mean, I could keep the student and the soldier separate. Yes. The student could be... The student could still be the, the one that comes up with... This makes sense. Okay, so the people who go to Europa, the members of the reading club who go to Europa, they're all postgraduate students, right? I suppose that makes sense. Yes. The guy who remains in the uh, Old West Town and working in the Old West Town and going to the university is a um, he's a bit of a prodigy, which is why they hang out with him, even though he's a lot he's a bit younger and less experienced than they are. But he he's not postgrad yet, so yes. he can't go with them to Europa. But he figures out the whole bicycle thing that we don't know what is yet. So the soldier's another character. The soldier's another character. I'm going to probably say that he is... Or she. Or she. Or they. Or they. I apologise. <laughs> they are a former soldier. Maybe an, a, mat uh, a mature student. And they are... They are the person that set up the reading club originally. And they did it as a means to, as simply probably, as a, as a mature student who has just left the military mm -hmm. and has returned to university, they did it as a way to try and connect with people inside the university that they would not normally interact with as a mature student, mm. compared with the average teenage to 20-something student. So they set up the reading club, and then our post-grad dog walker happens to get to know this student and the student obviously still kind of is communicating with the dog walker as yeah. they go is there a relationship here that we need to build on probably there will need to be relationships between well, three of these characters i feel like there should be another character on europa though yeah. another significant character on europa it's not much of a club otherwise is it well, I've got, I've got, are we i've got a title i've got a title for the story already the europa reading club i kind of like it yeah me too. Are we kind of establishing then that clubs are only four people or more? Well, I feel like I feel like it's a very small club if it's just three people or just two people. Okay. I was kind of kidding, but go ahead and choose another person. All right. Digging deep. Damn it. Mm. Time traveler. Oh, that just that ruins spoils it. everything. That spoils everything. I'm going to... No, no, no. We have to keep it. I mean, I know that I fiddle with it a little bit, but no, we, we, we have to do something with that. I suppose this particular post-grad student could be researching time travel. Could be. I'm trying to think, because obviously we picked Dog Walker before, and I made that work by just making up a job. So could Time Traveller be also something that is not what it sounds like? Possibly. A pilot. Because you know the whole thing about the faster towards speed of light you go, the more yeah, time Yeah, yeah, becomes... just like in, in the Hainish cycle. Yeah, exactly. So what if pilots that travel at near relativistic speeds are called time travelers because they do not age at the same rate as everyone else? That's a good point. I like that. I'm not quite sure what the science is on that. I'm sure someone can correct us. But yeah, that could be a thing. That could be a thing. So a pilot. Would they still be a member of the reading club? It I could suppose be. it'd have to be. They could be. Maybe, maybe he's a trainee time traveller. That works. Yes. 
Okay, well, that does expand the the world building quite a bit then, because just there we've just decided that there is near speed of light time travel, so probably getting to and from Europa doesn't take all that long, really. But if well, you it are, does, but it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, if you're traveling at say close to the speed of light, it's still a matter of you're not traveling for months or true. years at that point. I'm not quite sure how long you're traveling to get to Europa, but not that long. Well, I mean, it takes eight minutes for the light of the sun to, re to reach the Earth. Yes. I don't know how long it takes for the light of Jupiter to reach the Earth, but probably about the same. Maybe. Isn't the Earth kind of smack dab right in between? Well, that's assuming they line up, obviously. I'm not quite sure. I, I'm not, I, off the top of my head. No. I'm not quite sure. But, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily have to be that close to the speed of light in order to still have a um, that kind of effect. I mean, you can that effect has been proved even just in orbit with the speed that, that space capsules... Has it? Yeah. Hmm. It's been proven with atomic clocks, but it, it's only very minor. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's as good as we can get without completely ruining the core concept that we came up with to begin with, which I felt was kind of cool, and I really don't want to ruin it. I agree. Yeah, okay. Um, Let's keep that. You know what? I'm not going to choose a relationship, because I think a relationship is getting too far away from world building at that point. That's more interaction between characters. I'm going to choose another location. This location, we're going to select what it means before we select it. We haven't got anything... I mean, presumably universities do not have their own space command where you can go to and fro without any problems. So the next one is going to be the location of the, of the space center. <laughs> what did you get? Abandoned shopping mall. Why not? I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're trying to cut costs and you need a wide open space... Yeah, that it's one of those exists, massive um, mega mall things. Yeah. They could build a spaceport there. I, I suppose that could be could be a thing. Yeah, they, they cut costs. NASA, or whoever this is. Probably an Earth, Earth-wide space agency at this point. If we're sort of far enough into the future that we have near fast, fast as light travel and... Uh, a space colony on Europa? Either way, whether it's... No, no, actually no, you were right. This is world building. We need to decide this, really. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go with your idea. This is an international agency. I think so. I'm going to say that countries are not necessarily united, but operations in space mostly are. Run through the UN or something. Which probably makes a lot of these students, since they are all space-related, maybe not the soldier... But they all have some relation to space flight or operations in space, probably. They are probably international students as well. Yeah, I'd say so. We don't necessarily need to decide who or what they are, who they are beyond that, but they're probably international students who got into this reading club. We need another event because we need to know why this bicycle is so important. If you draw zombies, I'll be upset. But you're going to draw because I drew the last event. Yes. So this next event is the reason why this idea for the bicycle that our student has from the old West Town, presumably an old West style bicycle, like just one that's leaning up against a, a fence or something that's there is... Do they have bicycles in the old West? Sure. Bicycles go back to the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah, okay, maybe. I don't know. I mean, they still used horses, sure, but I mean, I'm sure... <laughs> I've just never seen a cowboy on a bicycle. <laughs> I'm I'm sure that somewhere 
in some old west town or another there was someone riding a penny a penny farthing or something <laughs> i'm just picturing a, a cowboy and like the stetson and the chaps and everything riding a penny farthing <laughs> If we can find that picture, that should probably be the uh, the the the, um, <laughs> the thumbnail for this particular podcast. <laughs> All right, so event for the connection of that, I suppose. All right. World's first. One of my more vague events, I must say, and that was to sort of get me out of certain situations. It doesn't really help me this time around, though. Well, it may be. It could be... The world's first space bicycle. On an ocean planet. An ocean... The world's first underwater bicycle. What what I was thinking about before, and this is the reason why I was being a bit vague with the bicycle, is that it could be a means for the, um, for the occupants on, on Europa to still sort of exercise. Because that's always the big problem in spaceflight. So it's like an exercise bike. Yes, and when we picked the when we picked the dog walk and we came up with a drone idea, instant thought for me was that maybe these drones are pedal powered. That admittedly does not make sense. No, 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 not powered, <laughs> but that's the way that you drive them forward anyway, so that you sort of gain exercise while working. But if it's a world first, world's first something bicycle. Nuclear. No, no, actually no, I'm changing this, and admittedly I am not... By the rules of our game, I'm not quite sure that I am allowed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to change the significance of this bicycle to our Europa world. Because this student has a notion that just like on Earth we have world records, the world's first space colony needs something similar. So that you have ones related specifically to the colony. So he decides to create an underwater, well, a, pe- a pedal-powered submarine that he chooses to be the first manned excursion on Europa, underwater. Yeah. Beyond the colony. Yeah, because they've been using drones so far. And he chooses to go with his bicycle-inspired human-powered submarine. To explore the waters instead. I guess that that power might actually be... I mean, I suppose they'd be using some kind of hydropower, probably. But but yeah, I suppose resources like like electricity and stuff might be... Might be a premium. Yeah. I mean, we established that this is probably a fairly... This colony has probably been there for a while. It could be... Got it. So, there is a problem on Europa. Mm -hmm. Because... While they do receive mostly enough power, they've got to a point in the growth of Europa where the power, for whatever reason, maybe they've just gone beyond their means and they've sort of not compensated enough for power. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there have been... Maybe it's an age problem. Maybe the um, issue here is a matter of the power source becoming a bit aged. So that occasionally there are power deficiencies. And when that happens, they've got enough in place that they can save the the people. And they've got more than enough to keep them happy and safe. But these drones that are powered remotely are just dying. And once they die, they can't really be retrieved anymore. 
So the submarine is a means of retrieving them? Yes. Good idea. No, it's not. But it's the best I can come up with. <laughs> okay. This pedal-powered submarine is designed to go deeper than the drones can and bring the drones back without using any power. Yeah. If anybody can write this and make this work, I beg of you to do so. Because <laughs> I got nothing. I think maybe this will have to be enough for today. We've created a world, which was kind of our goal. I don't think that we really have time to get all that much into plot at this point, because there's a lot I'm going to cut up, but right now the uh, recording is at one hour and 50 minutes. It's fine if it's a bit longer than the last one. Yeah, but I don't want it to be too long because people will get bored. Yeah, okay, so just to summarize. Mm -hmm. So we have a colony on Europa. Which is a campus. That is a campus. And a research campus to uh, study the waters of Europa mm -hmm. with uh, an oceanographer who is referred to as a dog walker because of the drones that they use on Europa to study the waters are called dogs. They are the central character. One of the central characters. The, I feel the, like this. They, I feel like this story. This story has several main characters. They are the first main character, in, of, and a member of a um, university reading club. The university being back on Earth, to which this campus on Europa belongs. Mm -hmm. And there are several members, including um, the pilot who took our dog walker to Europa in the first place. They are who travels near light speed to reach Europa and does so so many times that they are colloquially known as time travelers because of the effect on their aging process and also a soldier who set up the reading club in the first place and a current student who probably is the youngest and newest member of the reading club yes but they're all very tight-knit and very close and the student works part-time in a old west recreation town and while working has come across this notion is head of using a bicycle to solve his his friend's power problem on Europa, and also somewhere in there is an abandoned shopping mall which is basically being used to as a as a launch site to get to and fro from Europa. This is probably why the power problems. If they're buying abandoned sho abandoned shopping <laughs> shopping malls to to launch space flights from, then I'm pretty sure they cannot afford to upgrade power systems on this Euro European campus of the university. This is a very... This is, this is, this is demon demonstrative of a very, very poorly run, probably should not be allowed to run, space system. It's on the verge of collapse. The, the Earth's economy is on the verge of collapse. That's all I've got. Uh... No, I like it. And then the student is uh, creating a, a the world's first uh, pedal-powered submarine in order to help retrieve the drones. Yeah, no, it makes sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it does not make sense. Honestly, if anybody can make sense of that or any combination thereof, please get through to us. Um, you can reach us um, on either Twitter at, at First Draft C or on Facebook at, uh, at First Draft Collective. No, sorry, at First Draft Collective. There is no the. Um, you can also follow me uh, directly. I'm uh, at Thorn underscore Wild with an E at the end on Twitter and I'm also on Facebook, just Thornwild. Yeah. Otherwise, we'd love to hear your comments. We'd love to know how we can improve this podcast because, um, well, frankly, it needs a lot of work still. Um, and also, we'd love to know what you make of these random stories that we make or 
preferably come up with something better because, you know, they could do with some improvement. And also, just to um, just to share with us how you write as well, um, if you have comments about um, what we've been talking about in world building or anything like that, uh, we want to get to know we, we want to get to know you. We want to kind of expand the uh, uh, the collective, as I consider it, of uh, of writers that are involved in this. Uh, so until next time, from uh, both Thorne and myself, please be well, and uh, we hope to hear from you. Yep. Bye. Goodbye.